0: What's Done in the Dark by Jasper Lestrange Neither of us would have called ourselves religious before we moved to Bleakford. Indeed, as a student I had been as outspokenly dogmatic about my atheism as any blood-and-thunder priest. Sam, always the more reflective, receptive half of our partnership, would speak airily of believing in something, a higher power, a binding force that she could not articulate and which I could not countenance. But these sincere, deeply felt beliefs stretching back across the centuries could not all be mere delusion, could they? There must be more to it, she said, than a simple, primitive impulse. Even now I am torn—torn between wishing I had been more resolute and hoping she was right. We had moved our little family of four—me, Sam, and the twins—five, including the cat—to the countryside. Like every hypocrite before us, we claimed to love the city for its vibrant, eclectic energy. Yet, as soon as we had the means, we swapped its danger and squalor for quieter, safer, greener, roomier surroundings. For the children's sake, we told ourselves. My design agency business had been doing well, but it was only after Sam's mother died, leaving us more than we could ever have expected, that we were able to move. I like to think it was helpful to Sam putting some distance between her and the city she grew up in, whose streets and parks and places would always now be haunted by her mother. The business of moving distracted her from her grief. She threw her energy into it. There was no time to become morose or to dwell. One chapter had ended, another to begin, in the charming cottage mantled with ivy and clematis that we had both fallen in love with. Of our first days and weeks in our new home, I remember only intense happiness. But when I look back, it is as if those memories are behind glass. Reaching out to touch them, my fingers are impeded by the invisible wall, with an audible thunk as they meet the cold pain. It was Sam who first suggested we went to church. I see how you might assume it was to help her deal with her mother's death. Maybe on some unspoken level it was, but I regret to say that her actual motives were not so pure. It was after we had spent our first year in Bleakford that the time came to seriously think about primary school for the girls. The one closest was decent and would have served them and us perfectly well, but the nearby Church of England school, Though a ten minute car ride away was better if you take stock in tables and reports, which we were very much inclined to do. It also fed a very good secondary score. For Sam, ingratiating ourselves with the church was therefore part of an effort to secure our children's futures, and the thing which replaced Project House Move as the prime focus of her energies. There was, however, another less cynical motive and it was one that we had begun to feel quite keenly, although it should have been obvious from the first day that we followed the winding road into Bleakford, and glimpsed, black on the horizon, the old Norman church, for that church dominated the cultural life of the village in the same way it dominated the landscape, despite its characteristically squat appearance. As city dwellers and non-believers to boot, We had underestimated what a church meant to a rural community. St Joseph's was not just the village church. It was the village. It was the beating heart of Bleakford. And for us to become truly accepted as locals and not as weekenders having lost track of time, it was necessary for us to become a part of it. At first I resented giving up the lazy Sunday mornings I had enjoyed since leaving the city. To my immense surprise, I had adapted rather easily to country life. The change of pace agreed with me, and I took great pleasure in rising late on the weekends and going for long rambles across the fields. In the process of moving, we had acquired a dog, Maxwell, much to the cat's unveiled displeasure, and even though he had been a sop to make the twins feel more upbeat about moving, he became my bosom friend accompanying me on my walks even when the girls were too busy or tired. The next stage in my reinvention as a country gent was to have been some trousers in a salmon or mustard hue of the type I had coveted since seeing them on some well-to-do local boys at the pub, but the shape of our Sundays changed when we started attending the morning service at St Joseph's. Again, quite to my surprise, I did not detest it as much as I thought I would, although that was greatly owing to the influence of Sam and the twins. For a start, Emma and Jess, our girls, seemed to relish the opportunity of being with the other village children. They would all be taken in a group into the vestry at the start of the service, and they started to actively look forward to seeing their new friends. I was naturally wary, and would always insist they told me exactly what had proceeded when they were out of our sight in earshot. It was usually a woman in her early twenties who took these sessions. Perfectly nice person called Susan. But I wanted to be sure they were not being inculcated. Which was silly of me, because of course they were, even if it was by way of colouring in-sheets and crafting activities. Sam, though, I could tell, was happy. She took the view that if instructing children to be kind, good-hearted, and charitable could be considered brainwashing, then it was brainwashing at its most benign and innocuous. Moreover, Sam seemed to like being at church. On the first few occasions we went, we found all the piety and sincerity a bit too much to take, and when our heads were bowed in prayer, the act of being so quiet and intimate within this congregation of relative strangers felt faintly embarrassing. Something about the hush and the softly murmured words and the close rustle of clothes, made us want to giggle, and we nudged and snuck glances at one another out of our half-closed eyes. In those private moments we were as juvenile as any of the children in the vestry. But over the weeks I noticed a change in Sam's attitude. In prayer she would fall properly, utterly silent. And now when I opened my eyes to Peek, I could see that the act meant something to her that I knew it would never mean for me. She derived something from it that we never really spoke about. Perhaps it was genuine solace and comfort, or maybe prayer was simply a form of meditation for her. But when she repeated Amen and opened her eyes, she would always look up slowly, blinking, and draw a breath, as if coming to. And I wondered where she'd been without me for there had been no spiritual awakening on my part, nor was there likely to be. I responded instead to the sense of tradition and history. It never failed to impress me that this building, shorn of its electrical main sockets, electric lights, radiators, fire alarms, kettle, tea urn, telephone, fax machine, and every other trapping of modernity, this dumpy Norman church had stood essentially unchanged since the thirteenth century, whenever my attention drifted during the more protracted sermons, my eyes would be drawn to the rafters, or to the stained glass, or to the engraved plaques in the church floor, and the old-fashioned names on the memorial to the war-dead. Not that the services were unusually lugubrious. In fact, the vicar, Reverend Wakelin, was a genial, good-natured old chap, prone to losing his place in whichever Bible passage he was attempting to explain and consequently prattling about nothing in a manner that was endearing and often incidentally amusing. He was a slightly effete, softly spoken gent in his early fifties, whose white hair was perpetually windswept and who gave the impression of having gotten dressed in the same blizzard. He was the opposite of fastidious. His dog-collar was often closer to the off-white of his teeth than the snowy white of his hair, but he was ever cheerful and down-to-earth, The same could not be said for his official or unofficial second-in-command, a woman called Debbie. I am afraid I am not familiar enough with the hierarchy of the church to know if she had a title as such. Indeed, on our first few attendances, I assumed she was merely an enthusiastic congregant, taking responsibility for welcoming everyone, leading prayers and updating us on upcoming events and parish matters. But as the time wore on, I realised that the vicar had more or less offloaded all extraneous responsibilities concerning the day-to-day running of St. Joseph's onto her, less it seemed on account of his own fecklessness than on her overzealousness. On occasions, when he was otherwise detained, she would deliver the whole service in her capacity as a lay preacher, and to be honest I came to dread those services. For Debbie's austerity and sternness was the opposite of Wakelin's good-natured bluster. There was something about her preaching that always seemed to me overtly performative, and perhaps strident is the right word. And when she added little personal parts to our group prayers, it set my teeth on edge. Lord, we ask that you give comfort and aid to those who are starving and suffering in the world. "'that through your goodness "'they may find warmth and nourishment. "'Lord, we ask that you grant "'my sister Janet safe passage "'as she takes the cross-channel ferry "'to France this week. "'Even kind, tolerance, see the good in everyone's Sam "'could be drawn into making a disparaging remark "'if I pushed hard enough. "'She's a bit full-on, I suppose,' she said, "'but her heart's in the right place. "'She's really committed.' I don't know what the vicar would do without her. As it happened, that was not an uncommon assessment, as I learned one afternoon at the bird in hand, although not for the reasons my wife meant. There are any off, said Jeff Stanhope, as we spotted the Reverend and Debbie strolling past the window. I had been taking a sip of my beer when he said this, and snorted into the frothy head, before realising he was serious. You're kidding. Those two I said. That's it like knives, he said, and I winced, more at the unwanted mental image than the coarse expression. But his wife, I said, isn't she sick? Alzheimer's or something. He mentioned it in church the other week. Yeah, she got diagnosed two years ago. That was when they started carrying on, I reckon. I suppose she was just a shoulder to cry on at first. You know she's always hovering around him like a fly around. Sheila, I'll have another pint of... Best, please, cheers. Well, that's how it began, isn't it? There, there, Fred. Tell Auntie Debbie all about it. Poor Freddy. Always doing so much to help people in need. Sometimes you have to think about your needs. Why don't you let Maureen's sister look after her and give yourself the night off, Freddy? Come over to mine for a glass of rosé and a game of cards. Before you know it, "'Old maid turns into strip poker, and—' "'He made an obscene hand gesture. "'Come off it,' I said. "'Debbie Presswick?' "'I admit it was a peculiar and unwarranted prejudice I had about the name Debbie, but it always seemed like a name for someone bubbly and young at heart, "'the very opposite of that gaunt, middle-aged woman with her hooded, pale eyes "'and long, lank hair of cobweb grey, who was so sanctimonious.' and outwardly ascetic. Stanhope's intimation that she was secretly the village sex-kitten struck me not only as unlikely, but utterly preposterous. "'Like my old man used to say,' he sniffed. "'It's the quiet ones you have to watch.' "'Well, how did you hear about it, anyway? 1st I've heard of it.' He smirked. "'I didn't hear it, mate. "'I saw it. "'With my own two eyes.' Then he gestured out of the window, and I saw the vicar and the woman disappearing into the thick crop of trees at the far end of the field. Distant though they were, I saw Reverend Wakelin look furtively over his shoulder, before following Debbie into the darkness, after which, telling me to keep it under my hat, he gave me an unflinching account of the affair, sparing none of the gruesome details, until I had the overwhelming and irresistible urge to rush home to Sam, and repeat every syllable I had just heard. "'You know what it is,' she said, at breakfast the next morning. "'It's a power thing, isn't it?' "'What, you mean she gets all hot and bothered "'seeing how he masterfully commands his flock from the pulpit?' I scoffed. "'He can barely remember what book he's reading from most of the time.' "'At the same moment, little Jess wandered in after the dog.' "'Who can't remember his book, Daddy?' she said. "'Just the silly man at Daddy's work Poppin, I said, "'catching Sam's anxious expression. "'No, I mean her power over him,' she continued quietly "'when Jess was safely out of earshot. "'After all, she pretty much controls that church now. "'Maybe he likes, I don't know, being dominated by her.' "'Like a Lady Macbeth power-behind-the-throne sort of thing,' I said. "'You could be right there. "'Blimey, who'd have thought a sleepy little place like this "'would be such a hotbed of scandal and intrigue?' Oh, "'Of course, that's what villages are always like,' she replied. "'Nothing else to do on the long evening, "'so everyone's always betting everyone else. "'It's well known.' "'Even so, Reverend Wakelin's extramarital fling "'had tongues wagging all over the village.' The more often I casually alluded to it in conversations, the more it transpired that practically everyone knew, and that Sam and I had probably been the last to know, and probably because we were still regarded as interlopers. The general opinion of Bleakford residents seemed to be that Debbie had been trying to get her hooks into Fred Wakelin from day one, and had taken advantage of his poor wife's condition often adding that it was probably a good job Mrs Wakelin wasn't compus More than one villager told me that they thought it wasn't even a romantic infatuation on Debbie's part. "'She wants more influence over St Joseph's,' old Bill Carruthers told me one evening. We often found ourselves walking our dogs at the same time. "'Make things a bit more strict how she wants them. She's a bit more Old Testament, that one.' That's the only reason she's with him, I reckon. For the church. And if I know what Fred's playing at, mind. The affair was secret, then, only insofar as everyone had tacitly agreed never to let on to either Debbie or Reverend Wakelin that they knew about it. Even so, I found myself flabbergasted during the following Sunday's service, when Debbie once the children had been ushered through to the vestry, gave her customary round-up of church news, and announced, without a trace of self-consciousness, that in her capacity as his personal assistant, she would be accompanying the Reverend to a conference in Torquay, and that they would both be staying overnight at the Imperial Hotel. I found myself scanning the room, trying desperately to catch someone's eye. I was staggered. "'either by her naivety or her audacity. "'Surely you know,' I thought. "'Surely you know we know.' "'Over the weeks and months that followed, "'I learned more, and certainly more than I wanted to, "'about Debbie and the Reverend. "'Bondage,' Mrs. Taylor in the post office said, "'peering at me over her horn-rimmed spectacles.' Her face was a perfect mixture of moral outrage and uncontained glee. M&S. That's what it's about. His wife would never have gone in for anything like that, of course. Not after she fell off her bicycle and broke her hip and put all that weight on her, anyway. And certainly not now on account of the Alzheimer's terrible business, but Pam Glover, who cleans for Dr. Meldrum, told me that Dr. Meldrum had Reverend Wakelin in his surgery once with a suspected pneumonia and had him take his shirt off to listen to his back. And that's when he saw them. Scars. Hundreds of them, he said. I must have been looking quizzically at her. Wit marks. Chains or whatever, she explained. From the bondage. Only Dr. Meldrum didn't call it that. He called it flagellation or something. You know how doctors are. They have to use the medical terms for things. But I don't care what it's called. I just know it's disgusting is what it is. You were right, I said to Sam later, about the power business. Sounds like he likes being beaten up and humiliated. No, I don't think that's it, said Sam, the reflective one. I think they're conflicted about what they're doing, you know, the affair. I think she's punishing him for his sins, for their sins. "'Jesus, that's dark,' I said. "'So they it off, then he begs for forgiveness, "'and she brings out the old cat of nine-tails.' "'Silly Daddy, you can't have a cat with nine-tails,' said Emma indignantly. "'She had apparently not been watching her television programme "'quite as intently as we thought.' "'Looking back, I realised that the warnings were there all along. "'Things were unravelling in front of us, but in a way that was too gradual for anyone to really notice. By the same token, the Wakelin Presswick affair had become something we simply could not look away from, partly as though we were watching a real-life drama being played out for our benefit, partly in the manner of rubber-necking motorists passing a car smash. Just before Christmas, the Reverend lost his wife, and just after New Year's Day, he buried her. We churchgoers were made to suffer a prayer session led by Debbie in which she asked God to give Reverend Wakelin the strength to cope with his loss. Help him to remember Romans chapter 8 verse 18. What we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. Help him to remember too that those who mourn are blessed because they are comforted. Let him take consolation from the knowledge that his wife who suffered for so long, suffers no more. Appalled by her hypocrisy, her grating piety, I lifted my own head above those that were bowed around me, and opened my eyes to glare at the pinched face from whose thin lips these words were spoken. To my horror, she seemed to be smacking. By the end of January, Debbie had been installed at the vicarage to care for Reverend Wakelin, who was, in her words, sick with grief. To the community, however, the vicar had merely moved in a replacement wife, and the vicarage was now a love-nest for the widower and his mistress. But according to Pam Glover, who cleaned for the vicar as well as Dr Meldrum, there didn't seem to be much love about it. It's always her what lets me in. He's usually up hiding in his study. I heard him crying and snivelling through the door once. And then... There's the blood. There's always blood on the sheets. And don't tell anyone, but... I've found towels in the bin before. Whole bath towels. Soaked in blood. The church services at St. Joseph's, as Bill Carruthers had predicted, became increasingly austere. The hymn choices were frequently depressing, and the twins said that church wasn't fun anymore now Susan had been told to swap colouring in and word searches for serious religious instruction and silent prayer. Meanwhile, in the vicar's absence, Debbie continued to lead the services, delivering her bleak, self-serving and pointed little sermons. In late February, the weekend before Ash Wednesday, she mentioned in her church dispatches that some of us may have heard on the village grapevine, and of course, all of us had, that the vicar and the church were being investigated over alleged improprieties, including some irregularities in financial reporting, which she assured us were entirely without substance. Then, back in church for the first time since his wife's death, Reverend Wakelin stepped forth to deliver a truly ferocious sermon that seemed intended to admonish us for our supposed indiscretions. The people were filled with unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, he spat. They were full of envy and deceit, and they were gossip slanderers and haters of God even though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die in the middle of his throthing blustering invective I glanced over at Debbie sitting on a chair to the left of the pulpit her bony fingers clasped her features resolute nodding vehemently in approval The rumours were that Wakelin's days as the vicar of Bleakford were numbered. Not necessarily defrocked, but quietly put out to pasture, I was informed, although I, in my ignorance, did not fully understand the distinction. The general view was that this was very probably for the best, although some doubted whether Debbie Presswick would be as easy to dislodge. For a few weeks Wakelin was absent. We saw him around the village, of course an ever more distracted, haunted figure. He had always been slight, now he looked frail and hunched. I had half expected that we would never see him in church again, so I was surprised when he was at the door waiting to greet us at the Easter Sunday service. Welcome, welcome, he said. Beautiful day, beautiful day. I smelt the sourness of his wine breath as with others we filed past him, and he patted me on the back with skeletal fingers. Mr Sparks, the organist, serenaded us with an unfamiliar dirge as we entered, but at least some effort had been made to brighten the atmosphere with daffodils, real ones in plastic pots, and displays of toy rabbits and decorated eggs. Susan, smiling, assured the children that there were pictures of daffodils and eggs to paint today, and if the children's paintings were ever so good, some chocolate to take home. When we had taken our pews and the assembly fell quiet, Debbie formally welcomed us all. As it was Easter, she had made more of an effort with her appearance than usual. Her grey hair had been straightened and had a shine to it. She was wearing a floral dress, and most strikingly of all, a slash of red lipstick, which had unfortunately stained her front teeth. "'Today,' she announced, "'we will dispense with the usual news roundup "'and get straight on with praising the Lord, "'for today is the greatest day in the Christian calendar, "'the day when we celebrate the resurrection of Christ "'and the absolution of our sins. "'It is the most holy of days and the happiest of days,' I wanted to shout hallelujah from the rooftop today because I felt so joyous. And in a few minutes, Reverend Wakelin, she extended her hand, palm open to indicate his presence, seated on the front row. Her red mouth was horribly wide, and her eyes shone with a sort of cringing adoration. Reverend Wakelin, who is back with us today after a period of ill health, Reverend Wakelin will deliver the good news. Hallelujah! She paused, as if expecting a round of applause, which stubbornly refused to come. But first, let us sing we plough the fields and scatter. Julie, we sang the words of the old hymn to Mr. Sparks' accompaniment, and then Debbie stood with Susan to call the children into the vestry. She was leaning forward, knees slightly bent with her hands pressed together, wearing an ingratiating smile, surely intended to be maternal, but which was merely off-putting. The children looked hesitant. I don't want to go if she's there, said Jess. Don't be silly, Poppet, I said, reassuringly. Your big sister will look after you, won't you, Em? Emma was the nominal big sister of our twins, having been born first. Hear that? I whispered to Sam, who grinned. "'Good judge of character, that one.' Go, oh, I said. "'We watched as the twins went over "'to join the noisy group of eleven children "'that had assembled around Susan and Debbie "'at the door which led to the vestry. "'A minute later they had been shepherded out of sight, "'at which point Reverend Wakelin "'assumed his position in the pulpit "'and stood squinting at us, "'swaying slightly, before speaking.' "'We plough the fields and scatter,' he began. "'I expect you're wondering why we've just sung a harvest song at Easter. "'You think old Wakelin's lost the plot? "'No, no, there is method in my—' "'His voice trailed off as he lost his train of thought. "'Susan stepped out of the vestry and passed silently by the rows of pews. "'We reap what we sow,' he blurted suddenly. "'We plough the fields.' scatter and we reap what we sow only we don't do we we don't reap exactly what we sow we plant the seed in the ground and it grows into wheat or a sunflower or a lettuce or a pumpkin or whatever the magic happens under the ground in the soil and and changes that seed into something very different from what was planted. And that's what Paul said to the Corinthians, isn't it? For agonizing seconds, his eyes searched wildly the open Bible before him. When he found the right passage, he stabbed it with his finger, as if nailing it in place. God gives to it a body, just as he wishes. "'and to each one of the seed, its own body.' "'He paused, his mouth moving, "'as if he was chewing over this last profundity, like cud. "'Out of the corner of my eye, I glimpsed Susan returning, "'carrying two jam jars filled with water and paintbrushes. "'You see, Paul was asked a question, wasn't he? "'How are the dead raised?' And with what sort of body do they come? Good question. Very good question. And Paul gave the example of the seed, sown as one thing, and transformed. This, he said, is what the resurrection of the dead will look like. We are sown corrupted, but raised incorruptible, sown in dishonor, "'Raised in glory, we are sown a natural body, but raised a spiritual body!' "'He became excited, no, demented, at this, "'the five fingertips of his right hand landing on the page like a hoof descending. "'It's all here,' he said, white flecks foaming in the cracked corners of his mouth. Flesh and blood is not able to inherit the kingdom of God. Behold, I tell you a mystery. The trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed, returning, not as the seed, but as the sunflower, not as the cadaver, but... I don't recall a noise, I just remember everyone suddenly turning in the direction of the vestry. Susan was backing out of the doorway, her face white, her hand was over her mouth, and when she took it away, I saw it left a red print behind. The hand was trembling and dripping. It was then I noticed the dark stain on her jumper. Don't be alarmed, cried the vicar, as people gasped and started rising from their seats. Your children are perfectly safe, for they are with the Lord, and they have traded the miseries and iniquities of this life for his love and his light. The dawning horror began to pound in my brain, and at the same moment, The vicar's eyes fell on me, as if he was addressing me personally. They have been changed. Changed into something wonderful. There was a loud commotion, but I could only stare at his face, the features twisted, made ugly by madness. A ghastly vein throbbed in his forehead. He turned from me, and cast his gaze upwards. We have shown that we fear your God, he cried, with fat tears rolling down his cheek, and that we trust in the miracle of resurrection. Now show us a sign that you are pleased. I wanted to stand, but my legs were strangely heavy. At first they would not let me follow the others who were all now running in the same direction. Instead I turned to see my wife, tearing, tumbling towards the vestry, crying and screaming, a blur of blue and yellow and green. She never returned from that room. She too was transformed. Today's story was What's Done in the Dark by Jasper Lestrange It was read by Jasper Lestrange If you enjoy the show and would like to support me, there are several ways you can do so. You can make a one-off donation through Ko-Fi. You can join as a YouTube channel member or become a patron on Patreon and make a monthly contribution, gaining access to exclusive content. Liking, commenting, sharing and subscribing all help the channel grow. Thank you for listening, and until next time, sweet dreams...